So friends, look with me at Romans chapter 16. I'm going to read verses 1 and 2. We'll look at it in context, and it's on page 950 in the Pew Bibles. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, servant of the church at Kenkrea, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints, and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. This is the final sermon in the series Cross and Culture. Today we come to a matter about which there is much confusion in our culture about what Christians believe and therefore probably much confusion in individual lives as well. And the reason for that great confusion I think is prominently down to the fact that there have been many different Christian leaders who have advocated for different viewpoints. And so, as one person I heard put it, after he had listened carefully to both sides of the debate, he found that he could argue either way, and so he just went with his feelings. But of course, as Bible Christians, we need to do better than that. We need to go with what the Bible says, and so this morning at College Church, we'll look at the Bible and explain it or exposit it, and then we'll look at what that means for the theme we're considering, this matter of the role of women in church, and lastly, we'll look at what that means in practice. There'll be application along the way to our personal lives, but the main body of the application will be at the end. So first then, what does Romans chapter 16 Uh, mean in context. Now, I'll take it for granted that most of you will remember at least some of what I said when we're going through Romans. So, I won't spend as long on this section as in previous weeks. In summary, the book of Romans is a bold reminder of the gospel of God for the sake of all nations. That's the phrase that we've used and we've looked at the book of Romans So the purpose of the book, each book in the Bible has a purpose, it has a goal, it has an end game. The purpose of the book of Romans is to inspire God's people with the power of the gospel to reach across all cultures and indeed the whole world. And of course it's deeply relevant for this matter of cross and culture therefore. Now the last chapter of the book, chapter 16. I want you to notice in this chapter there's a whole series of greetings throughout And uh, throughout those greetings, you know, greet so-and-so, greet such-and-such person, um, throughout that there's a phrase that's repeated over and over again. Every single time Paul greets someone, he says, in the Lord or in Christ Jesus or in Jesus. Uh, So some examples. Welcome, Phoebe, in the Lord, verse 2. Greet Priscilla and Aquila in Christ Jesus, verse 3. And on and on it goes. Just another one. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ. Now, Paul is a careful writer, and so he does this kind of thing for a purpose. And the reason why he's doing this is to emphasize to the Roman Christians and anyone subsequently who would read his letter, like us this morning, 
that when we want a beautiful relationship with each other in church, when we want relationships with other people, when we want to heal the problems of all nations, the gospel of God, for all nations, first of all, we have to consider our vertical relationship with God, and that then will impact our horizontal relationships with each other. Well, I said there'll be applications we go along, and here there is one. If you are struggling with a relationship with someone, maybe it is your spouse, maybe it's your parents, maybe it's your child, the first thing to do is to focus on the vertical. Often we go only for the horizontal. We make a meeting and we have it out. We have the conversation. Um, But greet so-and-so in the Lord. First of all, the vertical will then impact the horizontal. Are you reading the Bible with your spouse and praying together each day? If not, how can you expect to have a thriving personal relationship with your spouse? Maybe you're struggling with bitterness bitterness towards some other Christian. You know, there's a connection that we have in Christ with each other that we can, as it were, leverage through prayer in Christ are you praying for that person that you feel bitter towards or maybe you're not yet a Christian you're just getting back into coming to church again here is one of the great reasons to do so all this authentic human relationship comes out of being in Christ Well, anyway, that's the context of Romans chapter 16. But what do these actual two verses we're looking at, uh, what about them? Note that in this long list of greetings, the greeting to Phoebe is unique. She is not greeted, she is commended. That is, Paul is standing up for Phoebe. And there are times when we need to stand up for people. There are times when we men need to stand up for women. Paul was doing that. He's standing up for commending Phoebe. Why is she commended? Because she is our sister, he says. Well, that's how to treat women in the church as sisters. We are a family. Treat each other as brothers and sisters. If you're struggling with lust towards another man or another woman... In your mind, when you're struggling with that, will you say, sister, brother? That will help you move back towards a more healthy approach to the Christian women or men in your life. Phoebe is commended not only because she is a sister, but also because she's a servant of the church at Cancrea. Now, Paul was almost certainly writing his letter to Romans from the city of Corinth because Cancrea was a harbor of Corinth on the Aegean side, that is the, the side of the sea between Greece and what we call Turkey today. It's nearby where Paul was writing, and so it's possible that this letter of Romans was carried to Rome by Phoebe, and so she, they're told that she is a servant or literally a deacon of this nearby church in Cancrea. Scholars differ as to whether this should be translated as the office of deacon or as the role of serving, 
To my mind, Phoebe was a deacon of the church in Cancrea because there is this sort of formal commending that Paul makes to the church that only really makes sense when you, I think, when you read it as a deacon. Uh, I commend to you, she's carrying the letter, Phoebe, our sister, and a deacon of the church in Cancrea. But anyway, that's why she's commended. She's a sister, and she's a servant or deacon of a church nearby where Paul was writing. Well, women who serve well are to be commended publicly, and so we should ask ourselves, who is there in our church that has served well as a woman that we can commend? Are we highlighting them in our email communications on our webpage? This is a public letter. I commend Phoebe. I'm sure we have many Phoebes. Are we commending them? And this commendation uh, that Paul gives to the Roman Christians about Phoebe is for a purpose, that they would welcome Phoebe. That is, uh, of course, hospitality is important. She was a visitor. She needed to receive hospitality. As a church, we, we agree that relationships are important, but we need to act in welcome and hospitality. Perhaps there's someone right here today who's a first-time visitor. Would you go up to that person and say, hello, my name is John or whatever. Would you like to get lunch? And just welcome them, act in hospitality to welcome her and help her. Um, uh, we're not sure exactly what that help means. Paul doesn't specify it, but there's some practical way that she might need help from the Romans. And there's a final reason for this commending added at the end, for she has been a patron, Paul says, of many and myself as well. So in the Roman world, a patron was a particular position in society. So if you were a patron, you had clients, and this system worked all the way up to the emperor at the top of the hierarchy, if you like. And the patron had clients, and the more powerful patrons had lots of clients. And the clients would go along to the house of the patron each morning and attend on the patron's good graces. And the patron would give them gifts and money and open up for them opportunities in their career. And that's how the social hierarchy of the Roman Empire worked. And she was a, a patron. She was an important and powerful woman. We actually know that there were other female uh, patrons at, uh, at the time, and uh, we have evidence of that. So the idea that women then in those days were all sort of pushed around, and uh, not, not true. In the ancient world, there were powerful female patrons like Phoebe. Well, Phoebe had used her position of power to support many he says. That is, she was advocating for the church through her network and connections, probably giving uh, to support the church, and had as well, uh, Paul says, supported him personally, presumably in his missionary work. You see, it's possible that the church at Cancrea met in Phoebe's home. That doesn't necessarily mean it was a small church. Um, when we say house church, we tend to think of a house like you and I have with you know, perhaps room for 10 people if you're lucky. Some of these houses in the ancient world of patrons were huge, and it could have been quite a large gathering. 
But anyway, they uh, perhaps met in her home in Kenkrea. And if that is the case, the church meeting could have been, as it were, under her political protection and her, of her reputation as a powerful patron in the Roman uh, world at the time. Well, here again, there's an application for us, isn't it? Isn't there? We live in America, in a um, prosperous suburb of an important city. Uh, Globally speaking, we are all patrons, really. We all have opportunity to use our gifts, our resources, our talents, our expertise, our business, our profession, our homes, to be patrons of the gospel. So let me ask you this, how can you do that yourself? Maybe you could host a small group or an adult community. Why not take a moment this very afternoon, sit down with a cup of coffee, and make a list of three ways you could be a patron of the gospel in Wheaton and around the world. So here is this text, Romans chapter 16. What does it mean? Well, Paul's overall message in Romans is a bold reminder of the gospel of God for the sake of all nations. Here is Phoebe. She's commended for using her position as a patron to stand up for this gospel, serve as a deacon. There's a logic here in these verses. Paul stands up for her to encourage the church in Rome to stand with her because Phoebe had stood up for many people, including the Apostle Paul. So what this text means is that not only is there a place in the church for women's ministry, uh, that is ministry to women or for women or by women, not only is there a place in the church for women's ministry, such ministry is to be commended. We should stand up for it. Phoebe, deacon ministry like Phoebe's, a patron like Phoebe, is to be commended. Well, what does this mean for our theme today of women's ministry and the role of women in church? It means we should commend women's ministry as biblically defined. And both aspects of that sentence are important. We should commend women's ministry as biblically defined. So first, we should commend women's ministry. Paul commended Phoebe. We should do the same. The great revival of John Wesley and George Whitfield had a patron behind it. Her name was the Countess of Huntingdon. She was called the main spring of the revival. She used her position and abilities and connections to advance the gospel. She would have her friends round to one of her very large houses and invite George Whitfield to preach the gospel to the crowds there. She would uh, buy up property around the country, and because of her aristocratic privileges, she was able to put on that property officially sanctioned Church of England churches, and she ensured they had sound preachers of the gospel. That's how she used her power, buy property, build churches, put in the the pulpits uh, preachers of the gospel. The churches were called Huntingdon Connection Churches. 
But there are, this isn't just a historical thing. There are many people like this in our own day, in our own church that we should commend. Not just women of strong personalities and powerful friends, but all women who use their gifting for the cause of the gospel and the church. This is a commendable thing. Let us commend it when you see a woman doing a large thing or a small thing to support or advocate for the gospel, serve as a deacon, serve in one of the many ministries in our church, stars, children's ministries, women's Bible study, mum-to-mum, youth ministries, missions, college ministries, adult community ministries, music ministries, small group ministries, on and on the list goes. When you see that, would you do what you can to welcome that and help that continue to have an impact. So how do I do that? Speak well of women doing ministry. Support women doing ministry. Commend it. Stand up for it. Write an encouraging email to someone you see who's doing women's ministry. Speak an encouraging word. Thank you for doing that. That was great. I'm so glad you're serving in this way. But the other aspect of that sentence is also important. We should support women's ministry as biblically defined. How is women's ministry biblically defined? I thought about this for many, many years and have come to a set of conclusions that I wish to commend to you. To do that, I need to first establish some credentials. I come from a long line of powerful women. My great-grandmother, who of course I never met, was a Victorian English lady who would go up to London to what is known as Speaker's Corner. In London there's a place of long-standing tradition where on the corner of the park people will stand up and speak their mind, they speak about politics, they speak about religion, anything and everything goes. And on this speaker's corner, my great-grandmother would go up to London and evangelize the gospel to anyone and everyone. She was um, highly involved in planting a church in London. She was a strong woman in ministry. My grandmother was also a strong woman. Uh, She was five foot nothing. I can still see her with the little cushion she had on her seat when she was driving her car so she could peer above the steering wheel. And in that car, she would drive at over 90 miles an hour when she was over 90 years old. (laughs) One time she got a new car, and I remember her saying to me this, Josh, you know... I've never taken this to a (laughs) hundred. Shall we try? (laughs) To which there was only one answer a teenager could give, which was yes. (laughs) And I remember we, I was watching the speedometer and we got to over 90 and the car was purring along quite happily as was grandmother. And then a sort of twinge of conscience, because of course, you know, you're breaking the law over 90 in England too. And um, 
she sort of looked at me somewhat wistfully and said, oh, I suppose we had better not. <laughs> and that was it. But that was my grandmother. And she was... She had a spiritual moral force that still impacts all our family, I think. I've got her Church of England prayer book that was given by her father on my shelf. Um, The next example is in a way even more emotional to me, though of course that's my family, but I had a, a preaching mentor a very, you won't have heard his name now, it's funny how these things go in and out of fashion, but at the time he was famous and highly influential in America and Australia and in England. And um, I was, you know, one of the young guys on the staff learning from him and all the rest. And he had a moral failing of a significant kind which none of us knew about. And that, of course, was bad. But what was worse really for me personally, was I discovered afterwards that he had been, because these things go together, you know, if someone is exposing a character flaw in one area, likely is enough, there's another area too. And uh, I found he'd been covertly undermining me. And you know, it was a woman in ministry who came alongside my wife and I and helped us figure out what what the next steps were. Believe me, I believe in women and I believe in women in ministry. And I believe strongly that the Bible's teaching about women has to, as I often put it, cut both ways. You can't defend one side of it without defending the other, for if you do, you just come across as being old-fashioned or traditional. The Bible is against patriarchal domination. I commend Phoebe. And we have to be honest, there has been in some traditional religious organizations a old pattern of putting women down or patronizing them, not commending them. Sometimes it's subtle, sometimes it's overt, but you know what I mean. But when we have the Bible open in front of us and we let it shape our minds and our hearts, we realize and begin to be faced with its freeing impact on women and men. And this is why when you truly believe the Bible, it always has that freeing impact. Compare the societies of America or Europe, massively influenced by the Bible, with, say, the societies of Saudi Arabia. Where are women more free? Don't tell me the Bible is oppressive to women. Go take a trip to Iran and then report back to me. The Bible is against patriarchal domination, but it is also against radical feminism. 
And here we also have to speak the truth. The truth is that men today are being undercut, attacked, undermined, kept in a perpetual state of juvenile adolescence by a media entertainment industry that wants them to, because it wants them to be consumers, that wants them to live in a sort of perpetual beer commercial. Or perhaps worse, always assumed to be negative and aggressive, even intrinsically potential predators. That's the message men are getting. I mean, just think about the TV shows or even children's books. On so many TV shows, in so many children's books, the man, the dad, is basically characterized over and over again as some kind of lazy idiot. Watch out for it. You'll see it. Oh, yes, the Bible is against patriarchal domination, but it is also against radical feminism. I am for the biblical picture of a beautiful complementarity. We have to let the Bible speak against patriarchal domination and radical feminism. We need to let the original picture of the sexes in Genesis chapter 2 come back to the beautiful picture of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5 and by the gospel undo the evil war of the sexes that was introduced into our world all the way back in Genesis Chapter 3, with the rebellion of Adam and Eve. So, when Paul says, as he does in 1 Timothy chapter 2, I do not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, I think he means what it says on the surface. Now, I know, and you may know, there's been a huge conversation about that sentence in 1 Timothy chapter 2, but I can tell you I've spent years, if not decades, thinking about it, I come from about as non-fundamentalist a background as you can imagine. And the best way to understand those words in 1 Timothy chapter 2, indeed any words, is in context. That is by the sentence and the paragraphs around them. And in context, Paul is talking about the church specifically and in particular the leadership of the church. And in context, he then means that an elder or overseer, who in the very next chapter is defined as needing to be able to teach, you see, cannot be a woman but only a qualified male. But it also means in context, as was Phoebe here in Romans and in 1 Timothy, that next chapter 3, described as the women, women can be deacons or deaconesses. I've inserted a lot of thinking in those few words, but I can tell you this biblical complementarian approach is healthy and viable in the contemporary world. We planted a church next to a postmodern university, and in that context we practiced biblical complementarianism, and it was not a problem. We had female deacons, we only had male elders, not a problem. They got it because there was no patriarchal domination. 
Now, one defender of radical egalitarianism, not the biblical picture of complementary roles, but equal status in Christ, radical egalitarianism, said that one of the reasons why he was against any kind of complementarianism was because people who argued for that always came up with lists of what women could not do, but never lists of what men could not do. Well, but there are things that men cannot do. It must cut both ways, this biblical teaching. So women, in my view, in the Bible can be deacons, and therefore men should not restrict them from being deacons, as has been done in some churches. Phoebe was a deacon of the church in Cancrea and commended for it. Women, in my view, can do ministry in church. We have women on staff. That should not be stopped, as some churches in the past and probably still currently have done. We have women running ministries in the church. In Paul's letter to Titus, probably written about the same time as this first Timothy, Paul there describes women teaching other women. So men should not restrict women from teaching the Bible to other women, as some people have done. All the book of Acts describes how Priscilla and Aquila, a sort of husband-wife ministry team, taught Apollos, a male preacher, the word of God more accurately. Now, Paul knew Priscilla and Aquila. He knew Apollos. So when Paul says in 1 Timothy that he does not permit a woman to teach or have authority over a man, he does not mean a woman cannot do any teaching at all. What he's referring to is what we call preaching, the authoritative expression of the doctrine of the church from the pulpit and the role of elders that guard that preaching and authority in the church. I think the women may not be elders and may not preach, but outside of that I see no biblical restrictions from ministry in the church or any legitimate area of serving in the world. So biblical complementarianism in no way means that women should sit around and do nothing, not at all. I come from a country which has a woman as queen. She is head of state. I have no problem with that whatsoever. I, as far as I can see, the Bible has no problem with that either. There's no reason why a woman cannot be a president or prime minister or queen. Arguably, in fact, the most effective and certainly the longest serving queens of England have all been women. I don't know what that says, but it probably says something. Women can serve as CEOs, corporate executives, etc., if they want to. Interestingly enough, recent surveys have shown that the countries which have gone the furthest towards total freedom in this area in the world, that is freedom of opportunity, countries uh, in the Scandinavian parts of Europe, those countries have found that left to themselves, women and men tend to sort themselves into somewhat traditional careers. Many more women nurses, many more men engineers, etc. But there's no reason biblically to restrict women from serving as doctors or politicians or anything, really, if that is what they want. The point the Bible is making is a more subtle one and a far more beautiful one. There is a mystery revealed in Christ that shows why. Mystery is how Paul describes it in Ephesians chapter 5. The mystery 
Paul's word for that which was hidden but is now being revealed in Christ. This mystery is the message about Christ's love, his sacrificial love on the cross. So when a husband sacrifices himself for his wife as he must, when a woman respects her husband together, according to Paul, they are revealing something of the very mystery of the gospel. The mystery of love, the self-sacrifice of Christ on the cross, and of trust, the reception of Christ by faith. This mystery of the cross is why the Bible defines the role of men and women specifically in the areas of husband and wife and in the church. For Christian marriage speaks of Christ's love for the church, and the church is to witness to Christ's love. Again, this certainly does not mean that women cannot do ministry. Look at Phoebe. Look at Priscilla and Aquila. Look at Mary Magdalene, the first witness of Christ's resurrection. Women can teach other women. Women can be on staff in full-time Christian ministry. We have women on staff. Women can serve as deacons. Women cannot be elders or preach. Not all men can be elders and preach either, only those qualified and called by God. This is not about gifting. There is an exemplary history of women's ministry on the mission field and in America. This is about how God has designed the church to grow and flourish. Carrie Sandham, Associate Minister for Women and Pastoral Care at St. John's Tunbridge Wells, the United Kingdom, puts it like this, and I'm going to quote from her. I think this is very good. She says, My suspicion is that where a church is led solely by a woman, most of the lay leadership will be female within five years, and the proportion of men in the congregation will steadily decrease. I've certainly seen that by observation in seminaries and indeed in some churches that have gone down the other line. She carries on. The issue is not one of gifting. No one would deny that women have considerable gifts, even teaching gifts. The issue is whether exercising them like this is God's preferred and revealed way of building up his church. She carries on. It's hard to say this, but maybe as a woman I am someone who can. We need to take a step back and see what impact women in positions of leadership have had or are continuing to have on the church's ministry to men. Now again, this certainly does not mean either that women cannot lead in positions of business or politics. Look at Queen Esther, who protected God's people in Persia. It certainly also does not mean that all women must submit to all men. No, the Bible is talking about the role of elder and preaching from the pulpit and the role of husband and wife. What we're talking about here is the revealed mystery of Christ's love as shown on the cross for his people. And this is why when this is Working well, someone can go into a godly home and, by the way, the husband and wife relate, taste some of the flavor of the mystery of the gospel. It's not traditional patriarchal roles, husband does nothing, wife does everything. Where's that in the Bible? Nowhere. 
This is not patriarchal domination. Women must not do anything at church and be sort of mousy and put down. Where's that in the Bible? It is not. This is the biblical complementarianism whereby how we relate together in marriage and in the church reveals the mystery of the love of Christ and the trust that receives that loving leadership. So we have seen that Paul commends Phoebe and her ministry advocating for the gospel. We have seen this means that we should commend women's ministry as biblically defined. Now, what does that mean for us individually or as a church or for the wider church's conversation about women in ministry? I'm going to start with the wider and then move down in scale to the personal. What then does this mean for the wider church's conversation about women in ministry? And very simply and briefly this. I commend to you women's ministry as biblically defined. Do it the Bible way and you will not regret it. Appoint people, support people, commend people who commend women's ministry as biblically defined. How about for us as a church? I think uh, we are following these patterns already, uh, the biblically defined support of women's ministry pretty closely, at least in theory. I am sure, though, there are areas in which we could grow. For instance, there seems no biblical reason why our deaconesses tend to do what are more traditionally defined women's things and the deacons what are more traditionally defined men things. I've not heard anyone complaining about it, but I think it would do us well to look at how the deacons and deaconesses divvy up their responsibilities and make sure that both deacons and deaconesses are fully serving in the office of deacon that they share. What about the personal or individual level? In this Me Too era, I think I need to say, if you have experienced anything inappropriate or wrong, then the leaders would want to know. We want to commend, train, and if necessary, protect our women as well as our men. What about at home? Well, let me commend this biblical calling of love and also respect. You say, what does that mean? Well, here's one idea. For every disrespectful or unloving word you speak, and we're all sinners, and we all do sometimes say things we wish we had not said. For every disrespectful or unloving word we speak, make sure you speak at least twice, two times as many words of love and respect. 
There are a lot of surveys and studies out there that the words that we speak at home need to have the majority on the positive side and at least twice as many words of love and respect. The family whose spoken words are largely words of love and respect will be a happy family most of the time. That said... There are times, though, when this ideal pattern seems almost impossible to achieve because what is done is not respectable or acceptable. I know. I'm a pastor. I know families. And if that is the case, first of all and above all, start with the vertical. Ask God for forgiveness. Repent of any known sins receive Christ by faith this morning and then talk to a pastor to let us help you more move closer towards a more thriving family life step by step what about women in ministry whether voluntary or on staff well I say this Don't spend your time worrying about where is the line. Am I allowed to do this? Can I do that? Where is the line? You run as hard as God calls you in ministry. And unless you start preaching from this pulpit or campaigning to be an elder, then you're fine. Be a Phoebe and I will commend you. I commend then to you women's ministries as biblically defined. Before we close, I must speak a final word, for things are not always as they seem. We have all these labels, and the reality can be quite different. I uh, remember one couple who were very passionately advocating for complete radical egalitarianism in their marriage and in church. As we got to know this couple, we noticed some interesting things. Despite what they said, the fact of the matter was the husband completely dominated his wife in some really quite unhealthy ways. We're radically egalitarian, they would say, but we noticed that the wife could not even decide which stores to go to in the mall without her husband's permission when they went shopping together. And so the label of egalitarianism was used to hide unhealthy dictatorial patterns of behavior on the part of the husband. Another couple I've known were strong advocates for complementarianism, the sort of thing I've been talking about this morning at home and in the church. But when we got to know uh, them as a couple, that poor man in that house could hardly lift a finger, do anything, blow his nose without his wife's permission. We're complementarian, she would say. No, you're not. It was a label used to hide her bullying behavior behind. 
I have known churches that claim to be all for egalitarianism. Everyone is equal here. They'll put on their label on their webpage, all for egalitarianism. But the truth of the matter is the male senior pastor completely dominated everyone, male and female included. And the label of egalitarianism was used to hide that pattern of behavior. We are all so human, aren't we? So full of fears and sins. And what we need is this mystery of the gospel, the vertical connection in Christ to transform us so that we might commend in our practical lives as well as our words women's and men's ministries as biblically defined. Let us pray together. Lord, we ask that you would bless our families here in the church, that they might be places of gospel love. We pray, Lord, for those who are single, that they might know that they are a full and vital part of the family of God, the church. We pray, Lord, that you would help us as a church to commend um, our Phoebes, those involved in women's ministries of one kind or another. We pray, Lord, for our men, that our men would not buy into the lie that life is all about consuming and getting power and seeking pleasure, but instead realize they are made to be self-sacrificial advocates for the gospel. So do this work among us, we pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.